0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to have the opportunity to be with you all. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then I will jump into our teaching time in Joel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have today to be here with your people. Lord, we know many among us are not able to be here. They're um, either sick or they're Uh, limited in some way and we just pray that you would encourage all those who can't be with us this morning. I pray for um, our teaching time that you'll give us ears to hear and I pray that as I go through the material I can make it understandable but also that I would be right about what your word says. I pray for all of us to not just be hearers but to be doers of the word. We ask all this Lord in Jesus name. Amen. So with that We find ourselves in Joel in what will be focusing on Joel chapter 1 verses 15 to 20. We're going to finish chapter 1 today, which I'm hopeful to do, but as I did an extensive review last week, I won't do the same, but just as a reminder, in the first 12 verses, Joel was painting a picture, and it was a picture based on current circumstances of a disaster caused by an unprecedented plague of locusts that devastated everything. It was an agricultural economy. All the crops, be they in the ground or on trees or fruit or vines, it was all destroyed. And this actually happened, and the people were actually suffering, and the effects were from the top to the bottom of society. They covered every aspect. So there were, apparently before the plague, there was a time of prosperity and there were some people that were just loving life. They were enjoying it. it. was a leisure time. It's gone. Worship, it's gone. They can't offer the sacrifices. Everything they need for the daily sacrifices that are commanded, the priests have nothing to do. They're devastated. And it goes even beyond leisure or worship. They didn't have food to eat. They're wondering how are they going to live Life was turned upside down, but as we transitioned last week into verses 13 and 14, and it's really, I think the section is 13 to 20, it seems Joel's writing because even though the people were aware with their eyes what had happened, there was a sense in which they were blinded to what was happening. So they were seeing what was going on but they weren't understanding the significance of what was going on. This wasn't just some bad luck. Some random act of Whoop, it's a shame the locust came this way. What Joel was trying to convey to them was that the locust plague was God's judgment on them. In some way and the details aren't clear, they had turned their back on God, and God was getting their attention, but they had, as of yet, not made the connection. So this event happened, it was devastating, it was terrible, everyone's in a panic, and Joel comes along to tell them, you don't even realize what is happening to you. He's coming along to the entire nation of Judah and in essence saying, wake up. This is worse than you think. Pay attention. This isn't about the locust. This is about the Lord. And so as we transition into verses 13 and 14, he's going away from this is what happened to what should you do in response to what happened. So as I made an outline last week and we started going through it, my outline was very simple, the proper response to the unprecedented calamity. At some point in the future, if I have the opportunity to teach this again, I'll come up with a catchier slogan, but that's what we have. The proper response to the unprecedented calamity, and last week we covered the first two. Number one, there must be a hard attitude of humility. And we see that in Joel's instruction to the priest, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests, Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And as I covered last week, the priests were the first to be called to repentance. But the repentance, the sackcloth, is representative of Humility. Of dependence. But it goes beyond just recognizing and being humbled. The second point was this. There must be a turning to God in desperation. There must be a turning to God in the desperation. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly... Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The priests were not the only ones called, in essence, to repent. It's everyone, the leaders of society, the elders, all the inhabitants, everybody that's there. And what is pictured here is all of life Coming to a complete stop. There's no more looking for food. There's no more eating. You're stopping. You're fasting. You're preparing your heart to cry out to God. You're not working. That's one of the characteristics of the solemn assembly. It's all the people coming together as one and cry out to the Lord. It's prayer. It's desperate prayer, knowing there is no plan B. Joel was making clear that the calamity was caused by God, and because it was God who brought this judgment upon them, it's only to God that they can turn to seek help. This was one of those types of problems that the wisest men in society, all getting together, couldn't fix. If your crops are destroyed, you can't grow them overnight. Even if they planted everything again, which we'll talk about later, it turns out they were in the midst of a drought, which would make that not very effective. But even if they could, it's not immediate help. Times are desperate, and there was only one solution It's interesting because he's calling all of them to gather together. And there's a picture in the Bible back to the time when the temple of Solomon was dedicated. Do you recall David wanted to build a house for the Lord? The Israelites before that just had a tabernacle, a tent that they carried around with them and set up and took down and set up. And David wanted to build a temple and God said, no, not for you, bloodshed. It's going to be your son Solomon. And so Solomon, years and years with all the experts, built the temple. And one of the reasons the temple was there was as a focal point for God's people when disaster struck. In 1 Kings chapter 8, I'm going to begin at verse 37, continuing through 40. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 37 through 40. Solomon is saying this in essence to the people if there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of the cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, verse 38, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, And this is Solomon talking to God. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. In essence, Solomon is just saying, Lord, When the time comes, when your people are devastated and they come towards this place and cry out to you, listen to them. That's what Joel is saying the priests are supposed to do. He's supposed to call the people together to do that very thing. Seeking God's forgiveness. Seeking God's mercy. The solution is one thing, it's God. They have to turn to him with sincere hearts. And he can answer their prayers. He can alone take care of the situation. He can forgive sin. He can repair the damage done. That's what was needed. In fact, as a preview, sort of looking ahead in Joel, he talks about that very thing in Joel chapter 2, verses 12. I'll read 12 and 13. This is God's words. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That's where Joel's going with all this. That's why he wants them to cry out to the Lord because God wants his people to cry out to the Lord. God wants to forgive. He truly forgives his repentant children. Now, this is sort of some add-on to what I taught last week, all that I've said so far. We're not into the new material. But I couldn't help but think to myself, praise the Lord, that's still the case. God is still gracious and compassionate. Compassionate. He wants His children dependent upon Him, trusting in Him. And there's a sense where we can become self-sufficient and we can fix our own problems and we can become full of ourselves and God may humble us to cause us to cry out to Him. Now be very clear, and I want to be very clear, not every time you have hardship is because of your own sin. If you look at the book of Job, that makes it very clear. Even Jesus' disciples at one time pointing out, why did this man get born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's not always the case. But it is good for us, and I've done this many times in my life, if the bottom falls out, to stop and ask God, is there something that I need to be crying out to you about? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. While the people of Judah perhaps thought their biggest problem was all of their livelihood destroyed. Their biggest problem was their sin was alienating them from God, and that's what they needed. But again, in the Old Testament times, things looked a little bit different. We have privileges in Christ that they couldn't even understand. Yet Joel made it clear they could still cry out. But that brings Joel to a crossroads in a sense. And we're about to get into our third point. Because there's another aspect, another response to this calamity that really occupies everything for the rest of the book. So I'll tell you how I've outlined it and then I'll start the verses. The proper response to the unprecedented calamity. There must be a heart attitude of humility. There must be a turning to God in desperation Number three, there must be a recognition of the consequences if there is no repentance. There must be a recognition of the consequences if there's no repentance. Because if there's no repentance, things will only get worse. Verse 15 begins to lay this out. Verse 15 reads, Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near... And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. The single verse here is really a turning point. In fact, most scholars, most people who deal with the book of Joel would tell you this verse really highlights the theme of the entire book. And it all hinges on that phrase, the day of the Lord. Alas for the day. It's not how we normally talk. But it's a sense of alarm. It's a sense of crying out. It's building that picture of things are bad. But it's going beyond the immediate consequences of the locust plague. That was bad. But he's looking forward. For the day of the Lord is near. Something else is on the way. This day, and we'll discuss what it is, is drawing closer. And in the context of all of Scripture, Joel sees this approaching day as more alarming than what the locusts did, and they destroyed everything. In fact, he's saying, come together, everybody gather. We have to cry out to the Lord. And yet, even as he's telling them to do that, he sees something coming that's even worse. Joel is pointing to a future day of judgment. A day when the Lord will come and settle accounts. Now, there's a sense... Particularly if you've ever been at a church that teaches about prophecy, there's a sense in which this is relatively familiar to us in some respects. I'm not saying everybody understands every nuance of Joel, but in Christ, we understand at some point in the future the Lord will return again, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. We read the New Testament, we understand judgment is coming, and for believers, we know that the day that the Lord Jesus Christ comes will be the best day we could ever imagine for us. The beginning of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, like he does in a lot of his introductions, he's talking about who they are and what they have. But he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning when he comes back again, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. For believers, we look forward to the day of the Lord. Because of Jesus, we're not condemned, we aren't judged, we are blameless. But we also know from reading the New Testament that there's a frightening part of the day of the Lord. Certainly Jesus talking about those who are standing before him saying, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. First Thessalonians chapter five verses one to three says it this way, now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape, but again. That's not for believers. Farther down in First Thessalonians chapter five verses nine and ten, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So we have this picture throughout Scriptures that one day judgment's coming. As believers in Christ, we don't fear that judgment because we know our sins are covered, we're forgiven. But we also can't escape that in Scripture, some people won't be ready for that day, they won't be in Christ, and it will be a horrific occurrence. So the day of the Lord, in a sense, means the culmination of everything for us as believers, but it also means the judgment and the wrath of God will fall on all who've rejected Him. Now, Here's the challenge when we're looking at Joel. We have all of Scripture. So we can explain the day of the Lord and understand it pretty well because Scripture deals with it so much. I can't remember the exact numbers, but reading commentaries, I think there's something like over 70 references where that is referred to as the day of the Lord throughout Scripture. But when we come back to the message of Joel, we have to remember that the people were only operating with a limited revelation at that point in redemptive history. We're on this side of the cross, but they weren't. So to understand fully what Joel's saying, there's a sense in which we need to step back into the shoes of his original recipients to understand the context in which he would say something foreboding about the day of the Lord. And I'm going to try and explain this because I think I understand it, but it's one of those times where I hope that I don't lose something in the process. But to understand Joel in its original context, we have to think back on the history of Israel. Because by the time Joel comes along, we're far into the history. We're long past the days of Abraham. We're long past Moses and the Exodus. We're long past King David and Solomon. And as I've alluded to before, the history of Israel is, in a sense, a roller coaster, but it's a roller coaster mostly heading down because of repeated disobedience. I, a few lessons ago, talked about the promises of blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy 8, that are also found elsewhere. In essence, Moses said from the Lord, if you obey me, you'll enjoy all these blessings. If you disobey, you'll have curses. And the history of the Old Testament is the curses. There's an occasional blessing here or there. But by and large, the Jewish people continually disobeyed. They chased after other gods over and over and over again, and God would judge them, and occasionally there'd be a little bit of repentance, and God would judge them, and there'd be a little repentance, but the pattern is all downhill. And the cursing that God brought on them certainly took the form of locusts and things like that, but it also took the form of all the enemies of Israel. The Egyptians had afflicted them. You read the history of the times the Philistines had afflicted them. We go through, we know at one point they were under the thumb of the Persians. The Assyrians destroyed them. The Babylonians treated them badly. So their history is littered with nation after nation that conquered them because they turned their back on God and God removed His protective hand. As an aside, you keep looking through history, even outside the Bible, and there's a reason the Jewish people have been hated, even to this day, by big segments of the population. I think the Holocaust fits within the scheme of this. Satan has always hated the people from whom Messiah came. And to this day, he would love to destroy them, because he knows they still, even in their rebellion, still are. Occupy a special place in God's heart. But throughout all of that oppression, God always promised His people, one day, I'll take care of you. One day, I'll settle the score, and those who oppressed you will be taken care of. In fact, later in Joel, we see Joel referencing that very thing. So, for example, turn ahead to Joel chapter 3. Beginning at verse 18, I'll read through verse 21. He said, And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood, but Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So against the backdrop of centuries of disobedience and God's judgment, amongst God's people there was always this hope that one day He would take care of things. Micah, the prophet, said something similar. Micah chapter 7 verses 15 to 19, pointing to a future day. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth, their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come and dread and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the re- rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So for those in the nation of Judah that thought about the future, you in essence always had an ace in your hip pocket. When the day of the Lord comes, the bad guys lose, we win. That's their simplistic thinking. The day of the Lord will get here, our enemies will tremble, they'll fall. They'll cower in front of us. We'll be victorious. And there's a sense in which that's accurate. But there's another sense in which they didn't really understand the day of the Lord at all. If I could borrow imperfect terminology, they saw the rainbow, so to speak. But they forgot the storm. Joel knew what other prophets knew and that's why he was crying out to them and warning them about the day of the Lord. He knew in their mind the day of the Lord conjured up some warm fuzzies and we'll be okay. And he was saying not so fast. God's judgment can fall on people who think they're okay and not all people who are a part of God's people in this sense of the Old Testament, were going to be saved. Not everyone would be spared judgment. In fact, the curses of Deuteronomy were going to culminate on the day of the Lord and fall on those of God's chosen people who never repented. So you have a sense in which people are dealing with a natural disaster and they're bothered by it. And Joel is saying to them, wait a minute, wake up. This is bigger than this. And he's warning them, and there's something worse on the horizon unless you repent. But the people in essence at this point were blissfully ignorant. They thought they were okay. They thought everything was fine. In fact, if Joel said the day of the Lord's coming, they would have said, good, get it here, because we'll be okay. And they didn't understand that not everybody survives the day of judgment. The same thing was happening in the northern kingdom. The prophet Amos wrote, and I think he was addressing the exact same thing Joel is addressing. He used more poetic language, But in Amos chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, we read this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas and in the streets. They say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there is wailing. You understand, that's almost the exact same picture of Joel. Because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? There was a misguided pride in being genetically part of God's people. They really thought, I'm good. I'm born into this, I'm fine. There's no issues. In essence the northern kingdom Israel was blissfully looking for the day of the Lord, not recognizing that those whose hearts are full of sin, who do not repent, shouldn't want that day at all. And going through the motions of religiosity is nothing with God. Amos continued, verse 21. This is God speaking to His people. I hate... I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for forty years old house of Israel? You also carried along Sikath your king and Kiun your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourself. Therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Amos was dealing with the same issue that Joel is highlighting. God is not mocked. Just because you jump through hoops or you call yourself religious doesn't mean anything to the Lord. He sees the heart. Judah had lost that lesson. And Joel, in calling them to an assembly, apparently was understanding that some could miss what he was saying. He wasn't just saying jump through hoops. He was saying be brokenhearted, be contrite, truly repent of your sins, cry out to God for forgiveness, for mercy. It's not enough that you're born this way. You need a new heart attitude towards the Lord. Jesus confronted the very same thing in His day. Who were the most religious people? The scribes and the Pharisees. They were the ones jumping through all the hoops. They were meticulous with their observations. They were holier than thou before we knew what holier than thou was. And I won't read it all, but you read in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you! Woe to you! Woe to you! Whitewashed tombs, hypocrites... In other words, the facts that they were descendants physically of Abraham would matter nothing on the day of judgment. In fact, in verse 33, here's how he sums up talking to the most religious people of his day. Matthew 23, verse 33, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So let me bring all this back to verse 15 of Joel chapter 1. Let us look at this again. Alas for the day for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the almighty. Joel is being as blunt as he can be. Speaking in our terms instead of using poetic language, Joel standing there saying Look at all around you. You think this is bad? The economy ruined, God's blessings removed, no worship, no food. You you haven't seen anything yet. You're scared now. You ought to be terrified because the day of the Lord is on the doorstep and unless you repent, it's going to be your destruction. God will wipe you out completely. That's the warning of this book. That's Joel's cry to them. This isn't just about the locusts. It's about avoiding the judgment of God because you've turned your back on Him. Turn to Him, repent, or else. Again, Joel has a compassion for his people. He's being direct, he's being, he's just being honest, look out. But to emphasize the urgency, he reminds them again of what just happened, verse 16. Has not food been cut off from before our eyes? He actually adopts, now he's not talking outside of them, he's saying, I'm one of you. Haven't we seen this? Gladness and joy from the house of our God, meaning again, he's just reminding them of what we've covered on multiple weeks. We can't even offer sacrifices to God. It's gone. We saw it. And again, this isn't a temporary problem. There's no grain or olives or grapes, so you can't offer sacrifices, but there's no way to get more grain or olives or grapes. Verse 17, The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. Again, you're just surveying the landscape, and it is apocalyptic. It's devastation. He's already painted the picture, but everything's gone. The storehouses, the barns, they're really the same thing. They're empty. There's nothing there. It's all dried up. That first part, the experts debate some of the words, but in essence, what he's saying is, look, even the seeds that might produce something for next year, they're worthless. You dig them up, they're not going to do anything. So not only are you devastated today, there's no hope for tomorrow. And it appears with that use of the word dried up and some things say that he says later, God brought a drought on the heels of the locust plague. Things are so bad, the animals are suffering. Verse 18, how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. In other words, the animals are groaning, they're not intelligent like we are, but they're desperate. they got nowhere to turn. The cows can't find anything. They're wandering around because there's nothing to eat. And even the sheep, that apparently, I'm not a farmer, but apparently sheep can eat some things that cows can't eat, they can't even find anything. So again, he's painting this picture reminding them over and over with all of this poetic language of how devastating everything is and he says, this is nothing. What's coming is worse if you don't repent. Again, repentance is possible. We're going to see that later. That's why Joel's calling them to repent. Repent. But this is urgent. This is pressing. If you don't do this, and so verses 19 and 20, Joel leads the way. I agree with those commentators that say in the context, what happens is Joel has told the priests, call a solemn assembly, cry out to the Lord, and Joel begins the crying out in verse 19. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. That's not literal fire, it's figurative. But it's the combined effect of the locusts eating everything, and then a drought settling in. Verse 20, Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Again, You take away everything that was growing, and then you take away water, nothing will grow. But Joel says, Lord, I'm crying out. Joel's bearing his heart. He's doing himself what he says others need to do. Lord, have mercy. God, will you help us? There's desperation. In Joel's heart, at least, there's humility. and He's calling for it from other people. But for all the darkness of the picture that's being painted, there's also hope. Now, we're going to see there's more warnings, but there's always hope. Why? Because God hears prayers. Because Joel knows that God, for all his wrath, stands ready to show mercy to those who call upon His name. And I see over and over the same thing occurs today. We can still cry out to the Lord. Romans 10, 12, and 13 jumped in my mind as I was coming to this. That's how we're even saved, is to cry out to the Lord. What Joel was telling the people to do is what Romans 10 is actually saying. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Verse 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Joel's pleading with them to do. the future day of the Lord, the day of judgments, really the focus of the rest of the book. When we get into chapter 2, he paints an awful picture of what it might look like because there's a sense in which many times God brings a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord through short-term days of the Lord when the people suffer. But in all of that, the beauty is that with darkness, and destruction looming there's always hope there's always hope because God who is just and holy is also merciful and kind please join me in prayer dear Heavenly Father this is challenging in some respects Because we're looking back into history that we don't fully understand and our views of it are colored by the fact that we see Jesus. Lord, I I can't even fully grasp the privilege that I have and that my brothers and sisters have that we live on this side of Calvary. But Lord, you've always extended a hand of mercy to a repentant heart. And so I pray as we continue to study Joel, even as we're understanding the history of it, we'll see the application for today. Lord, we live in an unholy nation amongst unholy people. But the biggest issue facing those people isn't economics or COVID or anything else. The biggest issue is that they face your wrath because they are in danger of dying apart from Jesus Christ. Lord, help us be your ambassadors to share the truth of the gospel so that we can encourage others to cry out to you because the day of the Lord is drawing near. Lord, if any of us who are your children are walking in sinful ways, if we're dabbling with sin, if we're tolerating sin, Lord, humble us, bring us to repentance Help us to turn away from wickedness. But Lord, give us the sense of urgency that you imparted upon the prophet Joel. That as we look around our society, help us not see masses, but help us see individuals. And help us, Lord, to be again your heralds to proclaim the gospel so that they can cry out to you before the darkness comes. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We don't deserve it. We thank you for your patience because we need it. And we thank you for your love because we're lost without it. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.